I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 888. We're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 this evening. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we acknowledge that in even the reading and the proclamation of Your Word that we need the work of the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this eternal truth presented to us and preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. Would you work sovereign grace in our hearts, whether for the first time or again and again, that we would never tire of learning of our great Savior as we see him here in John 4 in his conversation with the woman at the well. May we see our great need. May we see the merciful and gracious redeeming Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And really the thrust of John's gospel narrative is to show us how Jesus reveals himself to be the Savior of the world. That Jesus reveals his identity in two main ways, through signs and through discourses. Through signs such as turning the water into wine, healing the lame and the sick, feeding the 5,000, but also through discourses, through conversations that Jesus has with religious leaders, such as Nicodemus, with a woman at the well here in chapter 4, and with others. And so through such things, signs, and through such conversations with others, we learn a great deal about the person and work of Jesus. It's through these signs and discourses that the calling held before us throughout John's gospel is to believe, to believe in his name, and that by believing, we might have life in his name alone. Now, the first of these discourses that John records for us is in chapter 3. Again, the conversation with Nicodemus about the necessity of rebirth in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, if you'll recall, was a teacher of the law, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, part of the elite within Jewish society. But here in chapter 4, we come across someone who is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, a woman, a Samaritan, one who has been embroiled in sexual sin. With Nicodemus, Jesus spoke of new birth. With the woman at the well, the theme is living water. Different metaphors, but a similar message. Similar because in both conversations, Jesus is talking about the gift of eternal life. Spirit-imparted life that comes from Him alone. So as we learn about the gift of this Spirit-imparted life that comes through Jesus alone, to start with tonight, let's talk about what's going on here in John chapter 4. Some of the important historical details of the narrative. Important details from the text itself. Now in all four Gospels, as Jesus' public ministry progresses through those roughly three years of public ministry, the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, as you know, it escalates. It starts with frustration. It turns to disdain. And then that turns into murderous hatred toward him. And already here in John chapter 4, we see in verses 1 and 2 that their hostility toward Jesus rises as his popularity increases. And as the number of disciples who are following him is on the rise, Jesus is a threat to those those who are in this established position of authority. And they have great animosity toward him. He is seen as sort of this rogue rabbi acting independently of the authority structure within Israel. And so Jesus leaves the region of Judea, that southernmost part of Israel, back to the northern region of Galilee. And the text tells us in verse 4 that he had to travel through Samaria along the way. Now one way to think of this is sort of as a geographical necessity. That Jesus simply had to travel through the region of Samaria to get to his destination in Galilee. Sort of like you would have to travel through Georgia to get to the beautiful mountains of North Carolina. 
However, we know that Jews coming from the north as they would travel to Jerusalem would often take a Transjordan route on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, in order to avoid the region of Samaria as they would come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices and worship the Lord. Of course, you could certainly get to North Carolina if you had such animosity toward the residents of Georgia by going through Alabama and Tennessee. It would, of course, take longer, but if you wanted to avoid that region, it would be possible. And so the fact that Jesus had to travel through Samaria is not so much a geographical necessity because there was another way, but he had to go through Samaria because it was part of the eternal counsel of God. Later in chapter 6, if you'll turn there just a couple of pages over, in verse 37, in the bread of life discourse, notice what Jesus says in verses 37 through 40. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we read of God's eternal decree of election, that all who are given to the Son by the Father will, with absolute certainty, come to Him. And those who are given to the Son will surely persevere to the end. And so the necessity of Jesus traveling to Samaria is to fulfill the eternal purposes of God, to seek and save those who were given to him by the eternal decree of the Father. Of course, we could say that, in a sense, there is this necessity to all that Jesus does. For everything that his earthly ministry consists of fits within this eternal counsel of God. Now, when we think of God's eternal decrees, the comfort for us is that whatever he foreordains will come to pass. And nothing will come to pass that he has not foreordained. This eternal counsel of God is absolutely exhaustive, infinite in nature. And therefore, it envelops everything, even the most seemingly insignificant things in our own lives, fit within the eternal counsel of God. If we have been made a child of the living King, His eternal decree means that he must carry us all the way home to be with himself. What an amazing comfort, isn't it? What an amazing comfort that we need to carry with us from one year on to the next throughout this earthly life. And so we could say that Jesus is here beside the well awaiting this divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. And as he is waiting, we read an important detail about Jesus in verse 6 that he was tired, that he was wearied from his journey. And this is significant because we have a glimpse into the true and full humanity of Christ Jesus. There was an early church heresy which taught that Jesus was only God, fully God, but God only. That when his disciples and when others, such as the woman at the well, saw him, they merely thought that they saw someone who inhabited a body. But it was more like thick, sort of dense spirit matter 
But if you're only a spirit, then you don't get tired and you certainly don't get thirsty. Jesus is fully God. He shows that to us later on in the narrative when he has knowledge of the woman's private life. But he is fully man as well. In his earthly ministry, he experienced life in a sin-cursed world. He did not, of course, commit any sin, but lived in a world affected by sin. And he experienced such hardships of living in this world as he was tired, as he was thirsty, as he was hungry, as his body was susceptible to illness just like anyone else. Adam lived in the perfect surroundings of the garden, and yet he succumbed to temptation. Jesus lived in a sin-cursed and sin-filled world and yet resisted such temptation and obeyed perfectly the law of God. In fact, he experienced the full range of temptation that we experience. That familiar passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And so we have a perfect advocate in one who was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And we also read in verse 6 that as Jesus sat by the well, it was the sixth hour of the day. This means that it would have been the sixth hour since sunrise, about 12 noon. This would have been the hottest part of the day and not a time that you would find very many people around the well. The women of the village would come in the morning to draw the water that they would need for their responsibilities throughout the day. And then they would perhaps return just at dusk to take more water for the evening. But nobody would come in the middle of the day except for this lone woman who comes at the noon hour. But why? Well, we learn from the narrative that she has had multiple husbands A very scandalous thing, even in our own time, let alone at this time of history in the ancient Near East. And it was something that would have been known to her community. So although the text is not explicit here, I think we can deduce that because of shame and because of shunning, she resorts to coming to the well by herself when the other women have already left. She's tired of hearing the murmuring voices speak of her scandalous life. She's weary of the glares from the other women. Perhaps she is tired of trying to defend herself, justifying her lifestyle, knowing in her heart that it is all just a facade. And then we read in verse 9 that she is surprised that Jesus would speak to her. And there are several reasons why she would have been startled that Jesus would take the time to speak with her. First, he is a man and she is a woman. Men and women would not interact like this in the ancient Near East. But Jesus is more concerned about her standing before God to worry about the social constructs created by culture. And you see, if Jesus does nothing by chance, but if he only does the will of the Father, then what we learn about Jesus here is the great love that he has for those who are lost. What love to sit here in the heat of the day when wearied from his journey, in order to seek her out and show her grace and forgiveness. What love and mercy to transform her life the way in which he does. What a tender and compassionate Savior we belong to. In fact, we never read about Jesus getting that drink of water that he longs for. As weary as he is, 
as thirsty as he has become from his journey, those things are secondary to the mission that he came to accomplish. When his disciples return, look at what he says in verse 34 to them. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what drives Jesus throughout his earthly ministry to secure your redemption. He is so consumed with doing the will of the Father that it is his food. It is what drives him. It is what sustains him. But it wasn't just that she was a woman and he was a man that led to her being startled that he would speak with her. Another reason why she is sort of taken aback is seen in her words and in this parenthetical comment in verse 9 that Jews and Samaritans do not interact See, the Jews view the Samaritans as an unclean people group, as those who were outside of the covenant community. But why is there such hostility between these two people groups? We need to go back into our Old Testament history to discover why there is such division between them. After Solomon dies, the nation of Israel, you'll recall, becomes divided. Under the divided kingdom, Israel in the north establishes its own capital in Samaria by the wicked King Omri. We read of that in 1 Kings chapter 16. The name Samaria then became a way to refer to the entire region in the north. And about 200 years into this divided kingdom in the year 722 BC, Assyria came along and captured Samaria. And they did two significant things. They deported all of the Israelites of substance And they settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving and remaining Israelites. Well, why would they do this? What would be the rationale for the Assyrians to do that? Well, it was a way to prevent revolt and to destroy any sense of identity or solidarity. Essentially a policy of forced integration. And this wasn't just a political or a social move, but it was religious as well. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we read about the religious syncretism that results from this policy of integration forced upon them by the Assyrians. And so those in the south in Judah viewed themselves as true Israelites, but the Samaritans, well, they were now tainted socially, politically, and most of all, religiously. And then around the year 400 B.C., the Samaritans construct their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They only accept the Pentateuch as the word of God, and so they deduce from the book of Deuteronomy that this is the place in which they should gather to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Then that temple on Mount Gerizim lasts for about 300 years, but is destroyed around 100 B.C. But even though it has been destroyed at this point that Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, the Samaritans still gather there upon the mountain to worship God. Now, this is part of the reason why the woman at the well asks Jesus about the proper place of worship. Our fathers say here on Mount Gerizim, but you say in Jerusalem. But even though she is startled that he speaks to her, this does not stop Jesus from exposing her heart and showing her what her true need is all about. And so as we step back and sort of take a a bird's eye view for a moment here, holding chapter 3 of John and chapter 4 together as we think of these two conversations, 
We have Jesus, again, conversing with Nicodemus, a learned religious leader among the elite in Jewish society, to the woman at the well, unschooled, without influence, a despised and moral outcast. She's in a category radically different than Nicodemus, but they have something very critical in common, don't they? They both need Jesus. And this is true of every one of us. No matter how moral you might think that you are, you need Jesus. No matter how nice of a person you think you are, you need Jesus. No matter how messed up your life might be, you need Jesus. So let's go on to our second main point tonight and consider how Jesus shows the woman her need. As we consider what Jesus shows her about her need, we learn about the universal need facing all of humanity. The woman comes to the well simply because she needs water, because she thirsts. And as a master teacher, Jesus uses the surroundings of the well and water to help her see her true condition and her greatest need. Jesus is saying that the condition of your heart is such that you thirst ultimately for him. And there is nothing that you can find in space or time that will satisfy. No matter how much time you give it, no matter how many different places you might look, your heart will ultimately never be satisfied apart from him. St. Augustine, who lived a very profligate lifestyle, after his conversion, looked back upon his life and saw with great clarity the ways in which he attempted to satisfy that inner thirst. And he famously said that we were made for him and our hearts will remain restless until they find their rest in him. And you know this to be true at various points in your own life. Any time that you find yourself craving something in this earthly realm, to some level you are looking to that thing to satisfy that thirst but it never lasts. It could be the hope of the new thing will satisfy. Even that shiny new thing that you got just a couple of days ago has already lost its luster, if not just a bit. Perhaps we think that just a season of financial stability will alleviate all of my stress and worry. It could be that we think a new circumstance will satisfy. A new school, a new relationship, a new job, a new location. Perhaps if we can just put all of those things in their proper place, then we will find satisfaction and contentment. Could be that we think achievements and recognition will satisfy. If I just got that appreciation from my children just once, that would be enough. But deep within the heart, to some level, again, either in the past or perhaps even now in your life, We have been deluded into thinking that something in the created realm will satisfy that inner craving. Now, we might look at the Samaritan woman and we might think that she is on a quest for God. We might look at others around us whose lives are so frantic as they seem to go from one thing to another, make all sorts of sacrifices, perhaps even are engaged in very benevolent acts. And we might think that they are on a quest for God. But in our fallen condition, we do not search for him. We are running from him, not toward him. There might be a desperate search for peace or for relief from guilt or for something to fill the emptiness of the soul, but it all leads to bankruptcy. 
Five times this woman has been married, no doubt thinking each time this will be it. This will finally be the one. But by the time she's gotten to this final one, she has given up of even looking and pursuing marriage as she desperately tries to find happiness. And this is our need. This is the greatest need that we have. We were made to worship our Creator. And only in and through Christ Jesus can we find the means to restore that purpose for which we were created. Look again at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is what Jesus offers. A spring of water welling up to eternal life that will never cease. And so Jesus shows her what she really needs. He shows her that her, th- her thirst is deep to the core of her being and that He alone can satisfy because He alone can redeem and restore. Now the prophet Zechariah speaks of a day of restoration in which living waters will flow from the holy city. Ezekiel in chapter 47 sees a vision of water flowing from the temple. And as it flows from that holy site, the further it goes, the deeper and wider in breadth it becomes. This is life-giving water. This is life-sustaining water which will never cease. It is water which will satisfy. Water that heals. Water that refreshes. And not only does water give life, but water has cleansing properties as well. Through the sovereign work of the Spirit of the Lord, the people of God will be sprinkled with clean water and cleansed from all of their defilement. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? You have no idea. This is spirit-wrought, spirit-filled life that will never cease. This, this is just a hole in the ground. As great as it is, as long as it's been there, it's there even to this day. As great as that might be, this is the gift of eternal life. And then we see her reply. How does she reply in verse 15? Sir, give this to me. I long for such satisfaction. I don't want to come here any longer. She's intrigued. She sees that he speaks with authority. She recognizes that Jesus teaches with truth. But she has yet to plunge into the depths of her own heart. And so how do we get what Jesus offers? How do we get this water that leads to eternal life? Well, notice how Jesus responds to her request. Notice what he says in verse 16. At first, it might seem like a subject change. Go, call your, your husband and come here. Many think that this is a deviation from the original text, but it's actually a seamless flow. You want what I have to offer? You want this spring of living water? Then you must see your true need. You must acknowledge that in fact you have been running from God, but you were in need of His grace. This gift of eternal life you see necessitates you giving attention to your need, seeing the depth of your sin for what it is. 
Eternal life in Him is found as we acknowledge our moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus, you see, in calling her to, telling her to go and call her husband is not shaming her, but as revealing her sin, showing that He knows her, exposing her heart, revealing the source of that inner thirst that she might see her need, as painful as that might be, to lay aside her rebellion and find in Him living water. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there is this annoying kid named Eustace, who in the course of exploring this island wanders off on his own and finds this pile of jewels and gold. And like the little sort of bratty kid that he is, he grabs the gold and he shoves it into all of his pockets, filling them as much as he can. He finds these beautifully, intricately woven bracelets and shoves them all up upon his arm. And then he falls into a deep sleep on the pile of gold. And what Eustace doesn't realize is that this is dragon's treasure. And when he wakes up, he finds that he has been transformed into a hideous dragon. Aslan the lion comes to Eustace, now the dragon, and tells him that he needs to just scratch and disrobe the dragon's hide that is enveloping him, and he will be free. Eustace makes an effort to scratch at his flesh, but he can't dig deep enough to discard it. And so Aslan takes his razor-sharp lion claws, and he tears deep into the dragon flesh. It's unbearably painful, and Eustace wants to scream and run and hide. But as the flesh is torn away, he is restored. But he's transformed. He doesn't return to the same person as he was before. As Jesus tells the woman at the well to go call her husband, he is ripping away those layers of guilt and shame and sin and false longing, digging deep to expose the heart. You want living water. You must see your failure. You must see your true need. We must have a proper sight of sin in order to have a proper sight of our need for grace. Well, what are we to make of her response then in verse 20? The woman says to him, rather, verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people should worship. And many interpreters suggest that at this point the woman raises this sort of this disputed point of theology in order to distract Jesus from the sin question that she finds so embarrassing. I suppose it's always easier to talk theology than it is to deal with matters of the heart. But I don't think that this is necessarily the case. I don't think this is necessarily a ploy on her part to change the subject. You see, if Jesus is going to continue to speak authoritatively to her, if she is going to yield to that authority to recognize him as a prophet, as one from God, then this significant matter of dispute between their people groups must be resolved. She wants some sort of authentication. She wants him to prove his credentials. See, the Samaritans recognized, again, only the Pentateuch, only the books of Moses as revelation from God. And they have deduced from that that this on Mount Gerizim is the place to worship. But Solomon received a word from the Lord to build the temple in Jerusalem. 
And verse 21, Jesus says that both locations will soon be obsolete. Nevertheless, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. They have been recipients of divine revelation in which they have heard of the promised Messiah. They have had the prophets who have continued to speak the words of redemptive history to them, something that the Samaritans cut themselves off from. They are standing outside of the stream of God's revelation. And so the object of their worship is unknown. Their worship lacks truth and it lacks knowledge. But again, this disputed point of location will soon no longer matter because of the impending work of Messiah. True worship can only happen in and through Him. He is the true temple. He is the resurrection and the life. And so when this hour is complete, true versus false worshipers will be known based upon this criteria. Not where they worship, but by their worship of the Father in spirit and in truth, through the perfect and definitive work of Jesus. Now, one final thing that I find so remarkable in the woman at the well is her transformation. The way in which the gospel that Jesus gives to her changes her. The way that this spirit-wrought change is made evident in her life. We didn't read this far tonight, but later in verses 28 through 30, in her eagerness to enjoy the new and living water and bear witness to Christ, she leaves her water jar behind, perhaps to indicate her haste. Perhaps John includes this detail as a literary clue to help us understand that she has left behind her old way of seeking satisfaction and has found life in him alone. And you see, this is the sin that has kept her from community. This is the sin that has led to her shame and isolation. But the tender, loving, albeit painful exposure of her heart by the Lord of glory leads her not to run and hide, but to leave her water jug at the well and to run into the, into the village and tell everyone who can hear her voice, the Messiah has come. I have found living water. And what is it that convinces her that Jesus is the Christ? Listen to her testimony. We see it in verse 39. He told me all I ever did. Now think about this for a moment. If someone came to you and knew all you ever did, how would that possibly be a good thing? How could that possibly be something that you want to go and tell others Come, find this one who knows everything about me, unless she found grace. You see, she has been hiding because of what she did, because of her lifestyle. But now the exposure of Jesus is not an exposure of condemnation, but it's one of grace, one of forgiveness. Her life is transformed because of the value that she now ascribes to Jesus. Her life is transformed into worship, worship in truth, worship in spirit because of who Jesus is. When she first saw him, he was just a man, just a Jewish man sitting there by the well. But now she has seen his true identity. She has seen who he really is, the long-awaited Messiah who takes away my sins, who knows everything about me, 
And yet even then, he offers to me a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't this what we all long for? Someone to know us completely. Someone to forgive us entirely. Someone to love us unconditionally. And we find that in Jesus. And how can our response be anything other than worship and a longing to take others to Jesus? We heard this morning as we thought about the shepherds and the way in which they respond, telling others about the glorious news of the gospel. And we have this fullness of revelation. We have more, as Pastor Mark Williams said, in terms of our theological understanding. And if this woman has such a passion to tell others about Jesus, how much more should that be true in our own lives? If we understand the value of the life that we possess in Christ, how can our response be anything other than worship of the great King, longing to know Him more, a desire to love Him above all else, for He knows everything about you, all that you have ever done, and yet still, even then, offers you life eternal. The value of Jesus is that He knows your heart, He knows your sin, and he takes it all from you, and he changes your dead, callous, hard, indifferent heart of yours, a heart that has been rebelliously fighting against him, looking for satisfaction in the created realm, and he changes it into a heart of flesh, and he places there, by his sovereign love, a spring welling up into eternal life that no one can ever take from you, that will never never, ever cease to bring life. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, what amazing comfort we derive from your word. What a compassionate and tender Savior we serve and we belong to. By your kindness and your grace, may you show us our sin that we might be driven to the cross of the Lord Jesus, seeing their full atonement and satisfaction seeing that in him alone we have life eternal. We thank you for redemption, um, undeserved, and yet comes to us in such kindness and mercy. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.